You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn to Colossians 1 uh, this morning. We're going to look at just a couple of verses today. Again, did you show your appreciation to Heartsong being with us this morning? Is encouraging uh, that uh, to watch college students that are genuine believers serving, following the Lord, using their gifts to serve Him. Very encouraging. Amen. They will be. They'll be uh, with you in the service today. There's a. They have a table set up out here. Afterward, there'll be a couple of them out there. But I hope you'll have time to say hi to them and thank them, interact with them uh, this morning. They were in um, Bardstown over the weekend. You may have heard there was a, a youth event uh, put on by the Kentucky Baptist Convention. So they were in town leading worship at Parkway Baptist Church for the youth of Kentucky. And uh, I thought, you know what, we ought to see if on their way home they could stop by and, uh, and lead our worship. And of course, I am biased, I know. All right, Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Let's give our attention to the Word. Um, I wanna, we're going to look at verses 19 and 20, but I want to begin reading in verse 15, okay? He is, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, that was cool. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us now as we look at Your Word. Give us ears to hear. And I pray that you might use me, Lord, as your servant, that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to summarize that people have uh, generally a couple of problems with Jesus. Some doubt his supremacy and some doubt his sufficiency. Those who doubt the supremacy of Christ are normally not Christians. That is, they doubt what Paul is saying here that we just read in Colossians 1, that Christ is the creator, that he is God, um, that he is supreme over all things. They may honor Christ as a a great moral teacher or a prophet, but they do not believe that he is Lord. 
as Lord over all, as Paul argues here. They don't, they doubt the supremacy of Christ. Others perhaps, and this might be more applicable to us in the church, we sometimes acknowledge Christ's supremacy, but we're not very sure if He is sufficient for us. That is, they're not sure Christ and His work alone are enough to provide for their salvation. Or maybe they believe that, but they're not sure His presence in them and His provision for them are not enough to live the Christian life. We might say that some people start with Christ, but they feel like they have to move on to other things. Sometimes they move on to their own works. They fall back to thinking that I've got to kind of earn my merit with God and so I've got to keep doing these things to make sure I'm saved. Other times, uh, maybe they seek after some experience. Maybe they're looking for some deeper spiritual experience that they think is out there and that they want to have. Sometimes uh, folks actually mix Christianity with uh, other beliefs like astrology or mysticism or some other form maybe of a secular teaching that's popular in the moment, but they're always seeking after something else. It's like they got Christ, they think, but they've they, they got to have something more, something else that's out there that's going to uh, benefit them rather than the sufficiency of Jesus. I think that may be what's behind Paul's words here in Colossians chapter 1. I think some were... Uh, whispering into the ears of the Christians at Colossae, something like Epaphras, remember that guy who had told them the gospel, Epaphras, you know, Epaphras and Paul, they didn't give you the whole gospel. You know, they, they gave you part of it, and that's good, Christ is good and all, but you really need something more. There's a, a fullness, you'll see this word over and over again in Colossians, there's a fullness that you lack and you haven't received yet. And so these believers here in Colossae are in danger of denying the sufficiency of Christ for all of their spiritual needs, and therefore, I would argue, in practice, denying the supremacy of Christ. What Paul is declaring here in verses 15 through 20 is that because Jesus is the supreme Lord, he is also the sufficient Savior. Verses 15 and 16, Christ is powerful enough to create the whole universe. If so, Christ is powerful enough to provide salvation for His people. Since Christ, verse 17, is powerful enough to sustain that same universe, sustain it, hold it all together. He is able to sustain, Christ is able to sustain every individual member of His church all the way from conversion to glory. You could say it like the Christ of creation is also the Christ of new creation like us. He is both creator and He is redeemer. He is both supreme and He is sufficient. 
If we were to lay this passage out side by side, if you put verses 15, 16, and 17 kind of in one column, and then 18, 19, and 20 in another column, there's this beautiful parallel between them. I, I thought we might have that up. We may not. Um, we don't, I guess. Anyway, but if you look at verse 15, it says, He is. If you look at verse 18, it says, He is. Verse 15, He's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 18, He's the firstborn from the dead. Verse 16, it's all for, for Him or for in Him. Verse 19, for by Him. Verse 16, in heaven and on earth. And verse 19, on earth or in heaven, it says. There's a parallelism. Paul wants us to see that Jesus is not just Lord of creation. He's Lord of redemption. His Lordship in creation enables Him to be the Redeemer whose life and death is absolutely sufficient for our life, for our salvation. I noted last week the repetition of the word all in the passage. It's all over the place. Verse 15, He's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, By Him all things were created. Verse 17, He's before all things. In Him all things hold together. Verse 19, In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Then notice verse 20, And through Him to reconcile Himself to all things. Paul wants us to understand, I, 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 he's saying to us, I want you to understand how adequate our great Savior is, how all-sufficient that He is, how mighty He is to save, and the effect of His work is no less than the salvation or the redemption of all of creation. He is both supreme and sufficient. That's not just an important message for the Christians at Colossae today, it's an important message for us as a church today. Let's look at it a little bit closer, just two headings this morning. First, notice Jesus is sufficient in His person. In His person, that's verse 19. For in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is an explicit and unashamed declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is sufficient because He is God. Notice that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. That is, all the attributes and activities of God, His Spirit, His Word, His wisdom, His glory... They're all perfectly displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That is, God's nature, His essence, His attributes, all the qualities that make God dwell in Jesus Christ because He is God. He's not partially God. He's holy God. There's so much rich theology in this part, but or in this uh, in this verse alone. But maybe just to point out one thing: when 
when Paul says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, literally says that he, it took up residence in Jesus. That's caused some people to ask, when? When did that? When, when did the fullness of God dwell in Jesus? At what point? Some might think, well, it, maybe it was at his baptism. No. It was not at his baptism, you see. If it was at his baptism, that would imply that Jesus was a mere man who became God. Or that God was looking for a perfect Messiah, and so he found the man named Jesus, and then, and then Jesus became God at his baptism. That's, that's not it at, at all. Jesus has always been God. He is creator, right? He's told us that. He is, all things were created by him and for him and to him. There has never been a time when Jesus was not God. There was a time when Jesus took on flesh, right? That's the incarnation. John uses the same word, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt that's the word, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus, who is eternally God, became flesh at his conception in his mother's womb, and he dwelt among us. The fullness of God which dwelt in Jesus has always dwelt in Jesus because he is eternally God. And we might say, uh, another point of this, is that Jesus alone is God. There, uh, Buddha is not God. Muhammad is not God. Nor is there any other religious leader or philosopher who is, is God. The, the language, James Dunn writes here, the importance of the language is to indicate that the completeness of God's self-revelation was focused in Christ. That is, the wholeness of God's interaction with the universe is summed up in Christ. In other words, you don't need to look to anyone else for more revelation from God. Jesus is God. You don't need to look for another Savior. You don't need to think to yourself, I wonder if God has something more to offer us beyond Jesus. Or something more than, than Christ. I need something more than Him. Well, what Paul is saying is that God, God does not possess anything beyond Jesus Christ, anything greater than Christ to give to His people because literally He's giving us Himself. In Him, he says, the very fullness of God dwells, all the fullness of His glory, His wisdom, His goodness, His grace, all the fullness of His power and of His purposes, all of them, pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you have Jesus Christ, you have it all. Jesus Christ alone is Creator, 
sustainer, firstborn of creation, firstborn from the dead, head of the church. He is the most supreme and sufficient gift that God could ever give us. What we say, to what end? Why is this so wonderful? Why was the Father so pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus? Well, Jesus is not only sufficient in his person, secondly, he is sufficient in his work. In his work, that's verse 20. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now that's an interesting verse there, isn't it? And something has happened. The words reconcile and peace imply that there has been some division. There's been some estrangement, brokenness that has happened between God and His creation. And no doubt it seems to me that Paul is referring there to the fall in Genesis Chapter 3, Adam's sin. And as a consequence of Adam's sin, creation itself suffered a curse. Paul talked about that, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. You may remember how he spoke there about how the creation itself groans to be liberated from the curse that is upon it. And indeed, all of mankind as a part of that creation suffers that curse as well. If futility and decay mark the, uh, the hallmarks of creation, the fallen creation, hostility and evil are the hallmarks of mankind. In our sins... The world and all who live in it are at enmity with God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And notice what Paul is saying, that God is, he says, through Christ reconciling all things to himself. Woodhouse writes this, The claim here is that the fundamental disharmony in the universe the dissonance in the totality of all things, the discord in the whole created existence has been put right by the blood of Jesus' cross. That's an astonishing truth, isn't it? You believe that today. You're telling me that the answer to all of the evil in the world, the answer to all the brokenness, the answer to all this mess, the answer to my estrangement from God and the answer is Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he's saying, isn't it? Notice some of the things that he tells us about this reconciliation. First notice the author of it. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things. God is the author of reconciliation. The work of reconciliation is God. The Bible is not a story about man's search for God. 
It is from the very beginning about God's pursuit of man. In fact, every reference to reconciliation between God and man in the New Testament, it is God who has always taken the initiative to do this work. It's God who acts. It's God who works reconciliation. Here's a couple of examples, Romans 5, 10, and 11. <clears throat> For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is something to be received. It's a gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, another example speaking to this, verse 18 and 19. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, he clarifies, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see, over and over again, the Scriptures teach that God is the one who initiates this work. He's the one who's made this possible. He's the author of this reconciliation. The fact that verse 19 comes before verse 20 here reminds us that God had to act first. He had to take on human flesh in order to provide the God-man, Jesus, to save us. There is no hope, no peace, no salvation, no reconciliation apart from this work. He's the author of it, Hebrews 12, 2. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is really incredible news because here's what it means. It means that reconciliation is a work that has been accomplished for us. Everything that is needed for us to be reconciled with God has already been done, church. God has done it all, you see. We're not waiting for reconciliation. Peace has already been made. Here's what this means. Dick, Dick Lucas writes this. God is not waiting on human achievement. He's waiting on human acceptance. He's not waiting on your good works. He's not waiting for you to do enough. Though you need to do something else, something more than what's already been done. No, he's saying to us, Jesus has done it all. That's why we're here today. God is waiting only on our response to what He has done. He's calling you to believe. Secondly, notice the means of reconciliation. You already know this. Verse 20, He's made peace by the blood of His cross. How was reconciliation Achieved. It was achieved at the cross. I love how Hughes writes this. He says, God's method of reconciliation is the death of Jesus. That's important. Once again, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them. Who did God count our sins to then? Who did he put them on? He tells us, he goes on, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God punished Jesus on the cross instead of us. Jesus bore the separation of our sins so our reconciliation could take place. He made peace by the blood of his cross. The fact that Paul brings this to the Colossians and brings them back to the cross, he's reminding them again that the locus of their salvation, the locus of their, their fullness, the key to fullness, if they want to use that term, to spiritual life and growth is the cross. Church, church, it may be a stumbling block to those who do not think they are sinful. It may be foolishness to those who are wise and righteous in their own eyes. But to us who are being saved, it is the power and wisdom of God. And as Christianity continues to morph and change and be influenced by the world, Church, we must not trade this precious gospel message for something else. We must not say, well, there's got to be more. Let's not take our minds off Christ. Let's not fall into the mentality as so many has that the cross gets me into God's family, but I need something else to take me into it more deeply. No, Jesus... And his cross is all that we need, isn't it? Paul never tells churches that their power is in persons or programs or any of those things. He constantly says, your power is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Satan's shrewdest efforts are aimed at taking our minds off the cross. He will do everything to try to get you to focus your attention somewhere else. Move on from it, he'll say. He'll do everything, but Paul says, I preach nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ, he wrote. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Finally, notice the scope of reconciliation, verse 20 and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. All things. There's quite a discussion there about what that all things mean. I mentioned Romans 8, 19 through 22 a moment ago, how creation is groaning and longing to be liberated from the curse upon it. And here Paul says that the scope of reconciliation through the cross of Jesus Christ, will spread even to creation. Think of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21. All things, he says, whether on earth or in heaven, will share in the peace of God. Other verses speak about the timing of this, talking about how creation must wait until the coming of Jesus Christ. Christ. But this shows us that the reconciliation Jesus accomplished is a much greater scope than what we could imagine. Now, what else is included in the all things? 
Some have used this to argue for universal salvation. That all includes everyone, and this must mean that all will be reconciled or saved in the end. Now, beloved, you know, in light of many other verses in the Bible, that is not what that means. Paul is not saying everyone will be saved in the end. How do we think of this then? There can be peace and reconciliation that he's talking about. You know, one of two ways. There can be peace and reconciliation with God either by removing that hostility through grace. The other way is by subjugation or force. It's through power. All things, he said, are going to be reconciled. Here's a verse. I think that may help. Philippians 2, 9 and 10. You know this. You know these verses. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, what's the word there? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You understand that verse is not saying everyone will be saved in the end. What that is saying is that one way or another, <laughs> every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. You see, either in this life, when you humble yourself and put your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord, will you confess Him? Or in the next, you will confess Him. By grace or by force, by power. Those who repent and believe and confess Jesus as Lord in this life, He will reconcile and give peace and we will be saved for all eternity. But those who refuse in this life will still confess Him as Lord. But they will be damned for eternity. One way or the other, Jesus is going to be supreme. And his reconciliation includes both his enemies and his elect. But he will be confessed as Lord, the Bible says. And so the big question this morning is, is will you confess him as supreme and sufficient for salvation today? Do you believe who he is, who the Bible says he is? 
Do you agree with Paul here? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one through whom all things were made, who holds all things together, the head of the church, the firstborn from among the dead, preeminent in everything, the very fullness of God dwelling in him, the one who reconciled all things to God through the blood of his cross. Do you believe that? Are you trusting in Jesus alone to save you? That he's sufficient. He's sufficient to save you. He's sufficient to grow you. He's sufficient to glorify you one day in heaven. You should trust him. Because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's the only Savior. Your only hope. Will you trust in Him today? Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we thank you for these remarkable words from Paul about your son, Jesus Christ, all that it reveals to us, Lord. We want him to be preeminent in everything, in every part of our lives. And so, Lord, help us to do that today. Help us to surrender to him as Lord, as supreme, as sufficient. Lord, help us to not buy into the the myths that spiritual life and vitality and fullness is found in something else other than Christ. That we have received Him, we have received You in all of Your fullness, Lord. So Lord, help us to focus on, fix our gaze on Jesus Christ alone. And we pray today, if there's one here that doesn't know You, they would hear these words, there's salvation in no one else. How can there be? No one else is able like Jesus to save. Lord, open their eyes to see it. Open their hearts to trust, turn from their sins and to trust Jesus as Lord. We give this time to you in response. Today, we worship you, Lord, as we sing this song as a confession of our great faith. May it once again Encourage us, Lord, and prepare us as we get ready to go back out into the world. We give this time of worship to you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.